Good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Um, I don't really have a place this morning for announcements, so I'm going to do them now. And I don't have very much, but um, we have not traditionally um, been real big on Lent in the Presbyterian Church. However, um, we're going to change that. And uh, we have some devotionals, uh, family devotionals uh, to hand out. I think I have enough for one for every family for Lent. Now, Lent started about a week ago, um, but last Sunday everything got screwed up, so we didn't get these out. So we're a little bit behind, but we're trying to catch up, and I'm just going to chalk it off to our Lenten inexperience. Um, If I could get some folks to help me pass these out, one... I think I have enough for one for every family. That'd be great. Thanks. Need one more person to help pass these out. Here we go. Why don't you do that side over there? The, uh, while they're passing them out, the uh, session over the last uh, month or so has met with a number of folks for membership. And I'm delighted to announce that we've uh, met with and received the Washburns. Uh, and a membership over here. And um, the uh, I'm not feeling great today, so I'm kind of forgetting some things here. But we've also met with Stuart Stearns in the back there and received Stuart. So welcome. This one, other one's been a little while in coming, but it's... Uh, it gives me great joy in saying that we've met and received into membership Morgan Lewis. So, the uh, that's pretty much it. Thanks, honey. Um, you want to? Uh, uh, I guess we need to dismiss Children's Church. Forgot about that. See, I'm just forgetting a lot of stuff today. Um, who has Children's Church today? Okay, follow Miss Emily, our younger children. Thanks. While they're going out, you'll want to get out your message outline that says the question of Christ on it. We're getting lots of stuff today. Open your Bibles to John chapter 7. It's warm in here, isn't it? The, uh, you can also read along in your outline that's there, but we're in the middle of John chapter 7. And John is writing, he says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. 
Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have a difficult passage before us this morning, one that's hard to understand, so we need your Spirit to work among us, to help us to understand and apply your word to our lives this morning. Help us to learn. Help us to change. Help us to be different because we've spent time with you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Suppose Jesus came to our church. I don't mean symbolically. I mean visibly, physically, actually. Suppose Jesus came to our church. Would you recognize him? It might be difficult. Jesus didn't wear religious clothes in his day, and it's doubtful that he'd wear them in ours. If he came to our church, he'd probably wear regular clothes, nothing fancy, a jacket, a shirt and shoes, a tie, maybe a tie, maybe not. He'd have a common name. Jesus was a common name back then. I suppose he might go by Joe or Bob or Tom or Elliot or Nathan or Clark or George. (laughs) Must be different having three first names. So, I wonder if Jesus had three first names, if our prayers would be longer or if it would be harder so they would be shorter. The... uh, But imagine he came here, and perhaps his name was Elliot. I like that. Suppose Elliot, the son of God, came to our church. Of course, he wouldn't be from Nazareth or Israel. He'd hail from some small spot down the road like Lovettsville or Linden or Poolsville or Hillsboro. And he'd be a laborer. He was a carpenter in his day. No reason to think he'd change, but let's say he did. Let's say this time around he was a plumber. Elliot, the plumber from Hillsboro. God, a plumber. Rumor has it he fed a football field full of people near the lake. Others say he healed a state senator's son from Warrington. Some say he's the son of God, and others say he's the biggest joke of the year. You don't know what to think. And then one Sunday he shows up. About midway through the service, he appears in the back of the auditorium and takes a seat and After a few songs, he moves closer to the front, and 
And then after the last song, he comes up here to the front and announces, you are singing about me. I'm the Son of God. And, and he looks at the communion table and it says, this bread is my body and this cup is my blood. When you celebrate this, you celebrate me. What would you think? Elliot, the plumber from Hillsboro. Would you be offended? The audacity of it all? How irreverent a guy named Elliot is the son of God? Would you be interested? Wait a minute. How could he be the son of God? He never went to seminary and didn't study at college. There is something different about him. Or would you believe? Can't deny it's crazy, but I can't deny what he's done. See, it's easy to criticize the contemporaries of Jesus for not believing in him. Having Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, come into their midst, I don't think would be all that different from having Elliot, a plumber from Hillsborough, come into ours. And when you realize that, and you realize how he came, you can understand their skepticism. Jesus didn't fit their concept of a Messiah. Wrong background, wrong pedigree, wrong hometown. No Messiah would come from Nazareth, small hick, one stoplight town. He didn't fit the Jews' notion of a Messiah, so rather than change their notion, they dismissed him. He came as one of them. He was Jesus from Nazareth, Elliot from Hillsborough. He fed the masses with calloused hands. He raised the dead wearing bib overalls and an upper Loudon Little League hat. They expected lights and kings and chariots from heaven. And what they got was sandals and sermons and a Galilean accent. And so some missed him. And so some miss him still. Because we all have our own preconceptions, don't we? I mean, we think we know which phone God would use and, and which car God would drive. We think we know what he's like. But he's been known to surprise us. We expect God to speak through peace, but sometimes he speaks through pain. We think God talks through the church, but he also talks through the lost. We surely look for the answer among the Presbyterians, but he's been known to speak through the Catholics. And so we listen for him among the Catholics and then find him among the Quakers. We think we hear him in the sunrise, but he's heard in the darkness. And we listen for him in triumph, but he speaks distinctly through tragedy. And see, the issue is we must let God define himself. And that's hard to do. Because we, we simply want to know for ourselves. We want to be able to explain him without it being overly complicated. We want to be reassured that he will act consistent with our expectations. And he often surprises us. And sometimes surprises upset us and confuse us and disappoint us. And that doesn't seem to bother him a whole lot, which just upsets us even more. And so we question him, which is exactly what the people did in his day when they discovered he wasn't quite what they thought. So let's see what they said. Let's turn to our text for this morning. 
we'll see the first question they ask is, not this the man, Verse starting in verse 25. It starts off with the people of Jerusalem asking, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? See, the people of Jerusalem were well aware of the evil plot by the Pharisees and the chief priests to have Jesus killed. And so they were mystified by the inaction of the religious leaders to do something about Jesus. The religious leaders have said that they would do something to, quote, take care of Jesus. But they're not doing anything yet. Maybe the people thought they were afraid to do something uh, to Jesus because of his popularity. Maybe they remembered their past encounters with Jesus as these same leaders listened in paralyzed uh, silence when Jesus openly condemned their hypocrisy, as we saw earlier in this chapter. Perhaps they feared debating him in public, knowing they'd come out on the losing end, again, as we've seen earlier in this chapter and earlier in John. Maybe they were awed by his commanding presence, remembering how boldly he had cleansed the temple all the way back in chapter 2, a mere few weeks ago. They may have been concerned that seizing Jesus would spark a riot among the people. That would be bad. The Romans would hold them accountable, and we'll see that concern arise again in chapter 11. And They didn't want to do that because many people in the crowd still had a favorable impression of Jesus. Perhaps some of the religious leaders changed their minds because it says in verse 26, and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The phrase used here, speaking openly, comes from two words, which means to speak as one speaks at home. The Greek word here, parousia, which is translated as openly, can also mean boldly or confidently. And it refers to speaking boldly because one isn't afraid when one's at home. And therefore, one doesn't cover up his or her real feelings when at home. And here in John 7, Jesus is speaking in the temple. He's in his father's house. This is probably as close to being at home as he's going to get. And he's speaking openly and boldly and confidently. And he's not hiding from them, and he's not afraid of them. It's kind of like John Calvin marched into Vatican Square to preach to the Pope. And in contrast to the leader's silence, Jesus' authoritative proclamation has captivated the people. They are amazed that Jesus has come to the temple right under the nose of his enemies. So they look to see what the Pharisees are going to say. Their desire is for a clear word from the religious leaders, and they're somewhat afraid to make up their own minds, to make their own decisions. They're used to being told what to do. So they look to the Pharisees, but all they hear is silence. And so somewhat naturally, they begin to speculate among themselves. We see in verse 27, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, sadly, it appears that the people have been misled by incorrect teaching. They say no one will know where Christ is from, but it's clear from the Old Testament prophet Micah that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. But they really don't know their own scriptures, so they think that they found an objection to Jesus being the Christ. If one objection won't do, surely another could be found. And as it happened, the objection they settled on is 
they thought they knew Jesus' place of origin. What's even sadder and somewhat ironic is if they had really known where Jesus was from, then they would have known that he really was the Messiah. However, despite the clear teachings of Christ, despite the powerful miracles of Christ, there's always something that those who refuse to believe could claim to be an obstacle. And so it is today. There are many people today who don't know the Scriptures, and they look for an objection to Christ. Because frankly, it's a whole lot easier to reject Him and walk away than it is to believe and obey. And then, like now, there's no satisfying those who didn't want to be satisfied. And so Christ answers their objections by posing a question of his own. He says, you know me? Starting verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I, came, where I come from? I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him. For I come from him, and he sent me. And he surprises the people by answering their questions, which, by the way, were not directed to him, but were directed to each other and to the Pharisees. And you see, Jesus knew what the people were saying and thinking about him, just as he knows what we say and think about him today. And so Jesus answers their objections. He says, in effect, yes, it's true, but you know less than you think. They knew the town where he was from, Nazareth. But in a much deeper sense, they didn't really know his true origin, that he'd been sent by God the Father. And he makes a bold claim to them that he's been sent by the one who is true. And he's letting them know in no uncertain terms that he really has been sent by the one living and true God, the God of the Scriptures. And that despite their religion, they were far from God. Jesus knew that they prided themselves in knowing the one true God. They thought they had a monopoly on God. But if the law points to Christ, and they miss recognizing Christ, that means they really didn't know the law as well as they said they did. It also means they really didn't know God as well as they said they did. For if they had really known the law and they'd really known God, then they wouldn't have rejected his son. This claim by Jesus as you can imagine, upset the religious leaders a great deal. It says, verse 30, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His bold claims has forced his opponents out into the open. Now they're openly seeking to arrest him. But also serves another purpose. It divides the people into two camps. Those who believed what Jesus said and those who refused to believe what Jesus said. Still today, whenever Christ confronts people, division occurs between those who believe and those who don't believe. We see that happening right here, verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And the people who did believe challenged, by their belief, those who didn't believe. And essentially they were saying, what else do you need to see in order to convince you? The evidence is mounting that Christ was in fact who he said he was, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who had been sent by God. But this turn of events continues to upset, further upsets 
the Pharisees. They really want to go after Jesus now. And Jesus, surprisingly enough, doesn't do anything to assuage their anger. And people don't know what to do with them. They don't know how to react. This doesn't fit any of their preconceived notions, their preconceptions. They're kind of lost. And so they go on and ask another question. They're not sure they understand what's going on here, what's happening, what's he saying. And so they ask, what does he mean? Verse 32. And the Pharisees are feeling threatened now. There's some people who are putting their faith in Christ. And it says, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. The Pharisees didn't feel compelled to act until they thought their position of authority was being threatened. And even today, when people come to Christ, those who oppose him feel threatened. Jesus then, just like today, presents people with a clear choice. Either he, Jesus, uh, is the one who knows God, is close to God, was sent by God, or they, the Pharisees, were the ones who knew God. But since they're in opposition to each other, it can't be both. And it was time for the people to choose. And only when people started to choose Christ did the Pharisees make an attempt to have Jesus arrested. But as verses 33 and 34 show, instead of being arrested, it's Jesus who arrests them, using arrest to mean stop or halt. He stops their rash actions by the boldness of his words. He says there, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And again, Jesus is telling them, yes, I'm here now, and I'm doing miracles, but I'm going to be with my Father in heaven after doing the greatest miracle of all. And when the mission my Father sent me to do is complete, providing salvation for sinners through my death and resurrection, then I will be with him in heaven. And after the resurrection, you won't need miracles in order to believe. Now, he doesn't lay all that out about salvation very clearly here. We know that because we know the rest of the story. We know that because the Gospel of John doesn't end in chapter 7. But he does tell them now, six months before the cross, that he's leaving them and returning to the Father. He doesn't tell them how and he doesn't tell them why. But he does tell them what he's going to do. And Jesus is letting them know that not only do I know God, not only am I close to God, but I'm going to be with God. However, you unbelieving Pharisees, you don't know God. You're not close to God. You aren't going to be with God. And he tells them, you will seek me and you will not find me. If their unbelief makes it difficult for them to find him when he's physically present here on earth, their unbelief will make it impossible for them to find him once he's returned to his Father in heaven. And all that is in contrast with the believers who know, actually from the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. We also know from Matthew 7, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then again, later in John, John uh, uh, writes that Jesus gives his disciples this promise in John 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. But once again, and again, very sadly, the Pharisees and many of the people didn't get what Jesus was saying. Their misunderstanding is revealed starting in verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? And here's their last question. What does he mean? See, they missed the spiritual point of the lesson. They're too concerned with their own situation. They're too concerned with the threat to their own authority. They're too preoccupied with themselves to listen carefully to what Jesus taught. And so we see that the Apostle John leaves us here with a picture of people who are unwilling to submit themselves to God's word and who therefore didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And as a result, they don't believe. Jesus has revealed their spoken claims to be merely superficial commitments. At the beginning of the sermon, I said we must let God define himself. And that's hard, because we want to know. We want to be able to explain it without it being hard. We want to be reassured that Jesus acts consistent with our expectations. And I said he surprises us, and surprises can upset us and confuse us and disappoint us. And that unbothered Jesus a whole lot. And so we question him when we discover he's not what we thought. See, we're not that different from those people. We're not that different. Let me tell you two stories about two different, very different people. First story comes from Rich Nathan, a pastor in Ohio. And he writes, when speaking about surrender, the real issue is not that you can't believe. The issue is for so many people that you don't want to believe. See, to believe means that some private interest of ours must be put to death. Many of you know, if you open your life to Jesus, he's going to start messing around with your life. He's going to start messing around with your job, with your relationships, with your money, with your sex life, with your future, and you don't want God messing around with your life. He writes, he talks to a scientist about a relationship with Christ, and they talked for a long time, and as this scientist was thinking through all of the implications of being a Christian, He finally sat down right across from Rich and looked at him right in the eye and said, if I become a Christian, that means I can't have sex anymore with my girlfriend. And he said, that's correct. Sex will have to wait until you're married. And he grabbed his head and began shaking it violently. And then he said, that means I can't look at pornography anymore. And he said, that's right. That goes. And he grabbed his head again and began shaking it. And then finally, you know, and Rich could see he's just working through all the implications of what it means to be a Christian in his real life, and that Jesus is going to mess around in his life. And he went down and finally stopped shaking his head and said, okay, I'm ready. The scientist understood that the issue is not the evidence of whether Christ has stepped into the world, uh, whether God has stepped into the world and the person of Christ. And it is not, can you believe? It is, will you really orient your life around Jesus Christ? And that unbeliever got it, and he became a believer. Second story comes from Tim Keller, a pastor of 
Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He tells about a man named Joseph who had once attended his church. And he writes, I think of Joseph, one of our first and most enthusiastic new converts. Joe announced his allegiance to Christ to all of his employees. He owned an advertising agency. He decreed that henceforth the company's business practices would conform to Christian morality. And at a Madison Avenue advertising agency, this was courageous and potentially suicidal. No more lying to clients. No more billing hours that weren't actually worked. No shirking responsibility, blame shifting for failure. And we all thought it was a recipe for disaster. And to Joe's delight and the surprise of all of us watching this experiment in obedience, his business prospered. Clients were ready to drop the firm for bigger agencies were now delighted with the straight talk they got. One angry client who had been ready to sue was so flabbergasted by Joe's honest confession of failure, he reversed his decision and gave him two new accounts. Revenues hit and passed the $1 million mark. He began bringing employees to church, telling them, you know it's true because it works. But then, when a romance with a married woman became a possibility, Joe abandoned his profession of faith. And he told Tim, I know I'm doing something you think is wrong, but I want to be happy, and that's that. Love is more important than your version of morality. And that believer didn't get it, and he was revealed as an unbeliever. See, his early embracing of Christianity shows why pragmatism tempts preachers. It reaps quick returns. People are delighted with practical help they get for saving their marriages and raising their kids and overcoming bad habits and you know, fighting off midlife depression. And they'll come back and bring friends. But without the painstaking work of establishing a changed world view, their commitment to Christianity is only as deep as their commitment to any other helpful product. Allegiance to something that makes their lives easier to manage shouldn't be confused with genuine conversion, which has at its heart surrender to the creator God of the universe. The scientist got it. He understood what it meant to surrender to Jesus. Joseph did not. The Pharisees did not. And most of the people listening to Jesus did not. And we need to learn from that. We need to be willing to submit ourselves to God's word so that we're able to understand what Jesus has taught us. Because if we can't understand what Jesus has said, then we can't fully believe it or obey it. And if we're not really believing and obeying Christ, then our claims to be Christians will one day be revealed as merely superficial commitments. Now, we certainly have historical precedent for getting a whole commitment to the whole gospel. But it's a dangerous game. It involves complete surrender of the heart. Here's a story I had for you last week. didn't get to give to you. Joanne and I had the privilege the other week of uh, seeing the new film Amazing Grace, which portrays William Wilberforce in his battle to end the slave trade in England. It's a powerful film. I urge you to go see it. And there's this really poignant scene in the film 
where Wilberforce is exhausted and he collapses into the arms of his wife. He's heartbroken over his failure to stop the slave trade. After years of struggle, after enduring uh, political tricks and treachery and deceit, he's ready to give up. His campaign seems hopeless. But then he gets a letter from an old friend who reminds him that for the Christian who's fighting a social evil, quitting is not an option. See, the year was 1789. was the year of the French Revolution. The mob and the guillotine ruled France. There was a tide of bloodshed. And across the channel, the British feared a similar revolt. So any type of public protest was linked to the revolutionaries who ignited the reign of terror in France. This had a damaging effect on abolition. Sensing the shift in the public mood, the House of Commons rejected another motion by Wilberforce to abolish the slave trade. And he was just weary and frustrated. And he considered quitting. And one night he sat reading his Bible. And a letter that he had received actually years earlier, which he had saved, had fallen out from the pages of his Bible. It was from the great preacher John Wesley. Wilberforce reread Wesley's familiar words. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. And those words galvanized Wilberforce. And over the next two decades, he continued to fight tenaciously until the slave trade was finally outlawed on February 23, 1807, 200 years ago and a week ago Friday. But then what you don't see in the movie is that William Wilberforce fought for another 25 years for the emancipation of all slaves, freeing all of the existing slaves. He stopped the slave trade, but all the previous slaves had still been slaves, and he fought for another 25 years. Finally won that battle in 1833. Wilberforce's battle had taken 46 years. 46 years. Today we're tempted to throw up our hands and go home if we lose a single battle. In our campaigns against modern moral evils, we're too easily discouraged. We've forgotten how to persevere. Of course we'll have fierce opposition. Sometimes the opponents will play dirty, as they did with Wilberforce. But it's no excuse to give up. Who do we think we're working for? I love the way Richard John Newhouse, who's the editor of First Things magazine, and he writes, We have enlisted for the duration in bearing witness to the truth. The duration could be six years. It could be 46 years. But like Wilberforce, we must work to change the hearts of those around us. And like Wilberforce, we don't have the option of giving up, but we need to go on in the name of God, persevering to the end. How did he do it? He was just a better Christian than us? I don't think so. See, from the beginning of his Christian life in 
1785, until he died one month after he won passage of freeing all the slaves. He lived off the great doctrines of the gospel, especially the doctrine of justification by faith alone based on the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is where he found and fed his joy. The joy of the Lord became his strength, as Nehemiah said. In Wilberforce's book, A Practical View of Christianity, he writes, the bulk of Christians are nominal. That is, they pursue morality without first relying utterly on the free gift of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone. He writes, they got things backward. They strive for moral uplift. Then they appeal to God. <coughs> he says, that's not the Christian gospel. That won't transform a nation. Certainly wouldn't sustain a politician through 11 parliamentary defeats over 20 years of opposition. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Perhaps you've seen those words around here somewhere. And he writes, the true Christian knows that holiness is not to precede his reconciliation to God and be its cause, but to follow it and be its effect. That in short, it is by faith in Christ only that he is to be justified in the sight of God. See, the battle for abolition was sustained by getting the gospel right. The battle for surrendering hearts to Jesus will be sustained by getting the gospel right. The gospel starts with prayer. So let's pray. Take a moment.